Revolution means that the abuses and excesses of the violent, reactionary, and disruptive minority has to be crushed so that the majority interests can prevail. I must be clear here, not confused. I'm a socialist. There's a lot of America that belongs to me yet. You understand? If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight socialism. We're revolutionaries and we fight for principles and there is no compromise. Váyanse al carajo, yanquis de mierda, que aquí hay un pueblo digno. Anytime you make an analysis of an oppressed people in any aspect of their life and you leave out the enemy, you will never come to a correct analysis. What you West, what you Europeans did, you just took it. We got to catch up with you. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. I actually think it's much more about the how and the way that we are coming together and how we are how we interpret that what. Good morning. Sunday morning. Nobody I know who's running for office talks about defunding the police. These aren't leaders. These are puppets and clowns. We're going to fight their reaction with all those people to get together and have an international and revolution. Right on. Right on. America always says they are democratic. Lies! That is a lie! They have never been democratic with native people. They have never been democratic with Indians. They have never been democratic with Hawaiians. They're not On the West Coast, where 200 inches of rain falls every year, there is drought. And where is the highest suicides and violence and murder of women? In those forest areas. Sailors people know the story of the double-headed serpent. We know the story of the split mind. We know that if you're disconnected from the earth, you will be disconnected from each other, you will be disconnected from creation, and then you'll violate creation. Quand on a une âme qui peut cracher le feu et la mort, et que l'on peut recevoir des ordres en se mettant au garde-à-vous devant un drapeau, sans savoir à qui profite cet ordre, à qui profite ce fusil, eh bien, on devient un criminel en puissance qui n'attend que le déclic pour semer la terreur autour de soi. How far would you go with violence to bring about the revolution? To liberate our country, to have dignity, to have respect, to have our mere human rights is something as essential as life itself. All the way. All the way. Which, what's, that, what's that mean? Uh, whatever is necessary. And those who demand instant perfection, the day after the revolution, they get up and say, are there civil liberties for the fascists? The revolution that feeds the children gets my support. Produire en Afrique, transformer en Afrique et consommer en Afrique. Produisons ce dont nous avons besoin et consommons ce que nous nous produisons au lieu d'importer. And I think that the United States is so good at threat inflation and fear mongering. But you know, when the Israelis pick up guns or the Poles or the Irish or any white man in the world, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says... What's happening? Good evening, everybody. This is uh, Q. And I'm joined by my comrades, Kieran and Mikey, and a uh, special guest, uh, Brad. Um, and tonight what we wanted to talk about was a little-known event, or probably well-known to the, uh, the people in this room, but generally not reported on 
by Western media, and that is the uh, the Bilderberg Conference, uh, conference that takes place in Washington, D.C. Last time it took place was in 2019, and uh, we, we just had a uh, revamping of the uh, Bilderberg Conference uh, that uh, happened this past week. Uh, it just actually wound down, and nobody covered it. <laughs> it pretty much went without notice. There was a couple of articles. I saw one in The Guardian, and I believe one was in uh, the Financial Times, but aside from that, didn't really see much coverage. Also, I wanted to uh, talk about uh, updates on Red Hill that uh, Mikey has for us and how um, the Canadian government, including the NDP, which is supposed to be the left party in this country, uh, more or less is upholding the uh, the war machine. So the uh, the NATO war machine that uh, you know we were promised was not going to um, draw Canada down into another uh, quagmire as it did with Afghanistan, as it did with uh, peacekeeping in the, uh, the the former Yugoslavia, et cetera. Um, yeah, now, now we're, we're pretty much uh, committed to a long-term strategy of attempting to destabilize Russia, which will in turn destabilize Eastern Europe, as it already has, as well as the, uh, the global uh, food supply, fuel supply. And uh, we can thank the uh, the party that was that positioned itself as being anti-war for that. How's everyone else doing tonight? How, how are you, Kieran, Mikey, and uh, Brad? Thanks for joining us. I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, Q, um, everybody, Mikey, Brad, uh, as or as I call you, YCD. <laughs> um, welcome. And um, I'm looking forward to it, um, to this, to tonight's conversation. Um, last time we went like over two hours, so I think maybe we need to. Yeah, we're going to have to condense it to like 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so don't piss off Kieran and call us uh, conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm doing great. I I can't wait to talk about the fluoridation of our water and uh, the lizard people who live amongst us and who rule uh, everything around us. Fantastic. And uh, Brad, how how you doing, man? This is this is up your alley because we're going down the rabbit hole of conspiracies. Yeah, I mean, kind of uh, backing my way into kind of conspiracy stuff. I was. uh... I was on kind of a more eclectic or kind of right-wing leaning like conspiracy uh, stream yesterday. Uh, kind of guy asked me if I'd share like a communist perspective on Gladio after I posted about it. And he's asked me kind of how I got into this. And I was like, well, I just kind of kept asking why, which made me a communist. And uh, now I'm like digging into some of these more specific uh, conspiracies and COINTELPRO and Gladio and some of the more specific actors. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of where I'm coming at, at it from. Don't have like a uh, exhaustive knowledge of these things and I have a terrible time remembering names, which is not great, but yeah, happy to, uh, when you get, when you get old, like me, that happens. It's no big deal. <laughs> right. I, I was never very good at it, but <laughs> uh, half the time I forget my kids' names. It's all good, bro. Uh, so first, um, I wanted to uh, begin with a uh, uh, clip of Max Blumenthal, who went to uh, he he actually went to uh, the Bilderberg meeting. He wasn't able to get in, which I mean, granted, like that's just not a thing that's done. Uh, it doesn't happen very often that anybody any journalist can actually get into uh, to the meeting. And I do have you know uh, a couple of books um, on hand that I can recommend and that I'll. Um, reading some excerpts from but uh there are some books on uh the uh the the bilderberg group that i would recommend people read the thing that bothers me about it is that uh a lot of people are aware of the world economic forum they're aware of the the conference in davos uh it's basically as we've said before it's like the common term for the ruling class but if 
uh, if Davos is like, I don't know, like the, the Pinterest vision board for the ruling class, uh, it's sort of like the, uh, you know, uh, it's like, it's like a Ted talk. Bilderberg is, is more or less like everybody getting down to brass tacks. So it's not throwing around ideas. It's, this is what we are actually going to do. Uh, so, you know, there were many people in attendance at the, uh, the Bilderberg meeting. Um, Henry Kissinger was there. Jens Stoltenberg, uh, was there, the, the, the head of, um, uh, of NATO. Uh, I don't believe Klaus Schwab was there. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Peter Thiel was there. Christian Freeland was there. And so it's generally, um, heads of government, it's spooks, it's oil billionaires and tech billionaires. And what they do is decide with no public input or oversight whatsoever. Uh, nobody's allowed to report on what happens. Everything happens, um, off the record. Uh, they're able to uh, put together a strategy for how the world is going to work. And as for the rest of us, plebs, um, having any insight, oversight, any say on the matter, that that doesn't exactly work. So it was interesting that I was talking to a friend today who's uh, from Sierra Leone, and we were talking about you know his uh, turn towards conservative politics. And I, I always poke fun at him because you know his, his father uh, was uh, fairly high-ranking in the UN and uh, works on um, African affairs. And uh, despite that, he has a fairly conservative political stance. And I would say to him, well, what exactly is what exactly is your issue not embracing, say, socialism or even communism? And his answer is that, well, I, I don't like the authoritarian nature of it. I mean, just look at what China does. I thought to myself, we, we just we just came off the tail end of the ruling class meeting to discuss exactly how shit is going to go over which we have no insight whatsoever and yet, people believe that China is an authoritarian power. Uh, so I, I find all of that shit really interesting. Um, but the the problem for me is that it doesn't really get reported on. Just the same way that Davos was barely commented on by the left a couple of weeks ago. Um, I have I have hardly seen anybody except for Max Blumenthal even talk about the Bilderberg conference. Now, before I, I go ahead with the clip, any any comments? Well, I remember a time when Democracy Now! used to report on things like that. Um, it was a while ago, and I don't think they're doing that kind of stuff. Um, but I do remember, like, you know, back in the day, like, I don't know, early 2000s or whatever. Um, I think even, like, I remember it being mentioned even by, like, liberals like Jon Stewart and stuff like that. But, you know, that, that whole segment of society has completely sold out, and they just wouldn't, they won't touch it. They won't. Yeah. All right, uh, so I'm just going to go ahead with the clip. So uh, I know how people feel about Jimmy Dore. Frankly, I, I don't necessarily share those feelings. I think that uh, uh, people tend to make him like, uh, I don't know, a scapegoat for a lot of what is wrong with an increasingly dysgenic left. But unfortunately, a lot of people just aren't talking about the things that need to be discussed with regards to how the ruling class operates. So anyhow, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and, and, uh, and play this clip. Oh, hang on. Am I not? Is everyone not hearing the clip? I cannot hear it. All right. Hang on one second. Kissinger and media elites are there to discuss Ukraine and the global economy entirely off the record. Well, what's the big deal, Max? The most powerful people in the Western Hemisphere are just getting together to decide the fate of their hemisphere. Why don't you try working hard and buying your own hemisphere, Max Blumenthal, instead of tearing down job creators? 
<laughs> the risk takers. The risk takers. That's right. They're definitely disruptors. They're disrupting their own economies. I mean, so here is disruptors. That's right. That's why they call themselves disruptors. So here, here is uh, Max trying to get into the hotel. It looks. I'm actually surprised you got to get this close. This is kind of so they got they got the, the fencing up, but the fence is open for a brief moment, and Max, the journalist, makes a break for it. And he gets all the way in. Watch how far he gets. I got past the bomb dog. Oh, really? Because you didn't have a bomb. Who's this guy? So they see him. Now they got him. Hey. Here comes the green squad. Yeah, you have, you have, you have. So he would, you're just trying to walk into a hotel in DC and to go up to reservations and they stop you. So you can't come in. Okay. And now the guy's going to tell you, he doesn't even know who he's doing this for. For the Bilderberg meeting of national security and big tech elites meeting in secret to discuss Ukraine. You don't know who you're doing security for? Okay. So they don't even tell you who you're working for. No idea. So that's how secretive the Bilderberg meeting is. So none of you know who, who's inside. It's not a meeting of national security and big tech elites to discuss Ukraine and the global economy off the record. <laughs> it's not. Oh, see, now you made him close the gate, Max. I hope you're happy. Now nobody. The only, the only other reporter there is. Well, allegedly, everyone from Peter Thiel to members of the National Security Council, NATO officials. Uh, big tech people like so they just put a fence around the entire hotel max that's what they did the entire hotel was reserved and a giant fence was on all sides of it it was surrounded with these goon squads of guys in black suits talking into their sleeves and then they had dc metro police out there as well as a kind of outer ring and the yeah the entire hotel was booked officially under the Hong Kong government. That was the official cover story. Okay. Could you, could you imagine if they had that kind of force on January 6th? Uh, yeah. You know, after <laughs> showed up on the old Palantir? Oh, why didn't they have that kind of security at the at the Capitol building on January 6th? They would have never gotten... So here's what you also tweeted. You said, at this man's response to... At this man's response to me makes clear Bilderberg participants and security were barred from disclosing the location of the meeting and from quoting anyone during the off the record sessions. The entire Mandarin Orient Hotel was reserved and blocked off for the event. Here's an anyway. I mean, we don't have to go through the uh, the entire segment, but that's that's pretty much what happens at the conference. Is that the entire hotel is blocked off? Um, there's no public access to it. When uh, Jimmy asked, okay, well, why isn't the mainstream media covering it? Max's response was, well, that's because they're inside. <laughs> that is, they're, they're, they're going by uh, you know, a set of rules that uh, if you're inside at the event, um, along with like the Council on Foreign Affairs, but not only the, uh, the media organizations, but their parent companies, like people who represent their parent companies are there. And there's just no coverage or oversight on this whatsoever. And what really bothers me about this is that the like when it comes to matters 
on what the left should be focusing on where it comes to building power, what it is that we have to resist. What I've seen the left tearing itself apart over for the last few days is Felicia Sanmez from the Washington Post snitching on David Weigel for retweeting a you know crude sexist joke, which he then unretweeted and apologized for, but got suspended for 30 days regardless, suspended for a month without pay. And that's what is occupying people's minds right now. And the fact that there is a conference at a hotel with pretty much everybody that decides all of our economic and social fates get together in a room or at a hotel conference room. And I have the, uh, the let's see, I have the conference uh, schedule. Uh, what, what was it they were discussing? You know, and among other things, they were, they were talking about, uh, you know, security in Ukraine. Uh, hang on a second here. Um, geopolitical, geopolitical realignments, NATO challenges, China, Indo-Pacific realignment, Sino-U.S. tech competition, Russia, continuity of government and the economy, disruption of the global financial system, disinformation, energy security and sustainability, post-pandemic health, fragmentation of democratic societies, trade and deglobalization, and Ukraine. That's what they were talking about this year. Nobody has any insight. Uh, nobody has any overview on this whatsoever. And yet we're arguing over whether it's okay to retweet a sexist tweet on your own personal account. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's uh, very indicative to me of just how like very much like the broader left here in Turtle Island is uh, (laughs) very unserious about like power and just like the question of power. It's that like, um, you know, kind of anarchist or Christian inherited um, mindset that like power is bad, power is going to corrupt you. And I think that like, because there's that aversion to it on like the personal level, there's also a tendency to just like kind of close your eyes and just engage in like wishful magical thinking uh, in terms of like your class enemies as well. Well, um, let me ask you, Q. I, I, I've been kind of staying away from all this crap. So, um, w- first of all, I'm not a fan of Dave Weekle, so fuck him. But uh, what did he tweet? What was the big deal? I didn't. Like, oh, he retweeted. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of Dave Weigel either. I don't think anybody really has to be a fan of Dave Weigel. Yeah, Weigel's I mean, understand. he shouldn't be yeah. canceled for that reason. But yeah, fuck. I mean, well, it's I, not just that. I want to clear, he, clarify. He's kind of a dick. He retweeted a joke that said, "Every girl is bi. It's up to you to figure out if it's polar or sexual." Like, right. I mean, that's. Which, no, by the way, it was a it was a for. it was a copy and paste of an earlier joke, which was "Every girl is bi." It's up to you to figure out if it's polar, sexual, or onical. That actually does make it funny. Right, <laughs> the right, bionical right. part makes it funny. Yeah, but you should have kept that. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So it just it was a retweet. The, it wasn't even. Like, it was a, yeah. He didn't on. tweet the joke himself. He retweeted it. Yeah. Right? So now and people then, are getting canceled for retweeting. The okay. like the Washington Post is on fire right now. And that's what people I, are paying attention to. Why? Because I mean, it's it's dumb, but it's not like the end of the world. I mean, it's, I get it, but I don't so, think he should have been canceled for it, even though I, well, I think he's an. And, and one of the reporters that works there, uh, Felicia Sanmez, basically, you know, tweeted out like a screen cap of him having retweeted it and saying, "Well, nice to know that this is what my coworkers think." And the thing is, the Washington Post is a unionized environment, so the proper way to go about it when your coworker does something that for which you feel that a grievance needs to be filed is you go and you file a grievance with the union. You don't 
go to, you don't snitch to management and you don't snitch to the public. You go to your union and say, Hey, this person, uh, retweeted it. And that, and that's even assuming that that's something for the union to take up rather than having a one-on-one conversation. But if you file a grievance with the union, the union handles it, but you don't, you don't make yourself that you don't make yourself your coworkers, HR person. But that, 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 I mean, to, to me, that's all besides the point. The fact is, that's what everyone has, has been, like, she ended up being the main character on Twitter for, like, six consecutive days. We're on day seven now. But I didn't see hide nor hair of people talking about this meeting, the Bilderberg meeting, especially with the topics that was on their agenda. Um, it really worries me that these aren't things that, uh, that capture our attention. You know the 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 leaders of the uh, the Bilderberg group, like the people who actually lead the group, um, Victor Halberstadt and Mary Jose Kravis. Now, Mary Jose Kravis might the name the name might ring a bell for Canadians. She is a bag carrier um, for the uh, the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, she's been a member of the uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. She's uh, served on the advisory board for the uh, the Reserve Bank of New York. Um, she's worked for Hollinger International. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, that's Conrad Black's former company. Uh, the, uh, the, the newspaper monolith that was taking over not only like every regional paper in Canada before Torstar, uh, began uh, picking up the, the slack after, after Hollinger fell apart. But, uh, you know, was the business enterprise that landed Conrad Black in jail on regal charges she worked she worked there until the early 2000s so you know these are some of like the most parasitic ghouls on the face of the planet and these are the ones that essentially um decide all of our fates decide who we go to war with decide what our economic structures are going to look like decide who lives and who dies and uh victor halberstadt is you know sort of a, a a shadowy figure um you know, he's uh, from Holland. He, uh, you know, has, has worked in uh, the uh, uh, Ministry of Finance for the Netherlands. Uh, he's, you know, been a, a cabinet minister. But after um, working in government, uh, he's gone on to work with uh, several NGOs and uh, international, like uh, finance organizations. He's somebody who's a regular attendee at the World Economic Forum. These are like, it doesn't really matter what people call themselves politically, whether they're they're. Liberal, conservative, democratic, whatever. I mean, Christian Freeland is there, um, the deputy uh, deputy prime minister for Canada, is there at this this meeting that is attended by some of the most despicable human beings on earth, and deciding how they're going to like arrange this new economic order. There are attendees at the uh, the Bilderberg conference that will leave the conference and then go on shows like. And not have to answer any questions whatsoever about what happens at this conference. So I, I, the, I don't know. The whole, the whole thing to me is just like, it's, it, fe- it feels like I'm going insane that these are events that happen and it's not covered in mainstream news, but the independent left or the, you know, this, this, this genic left, I don't see anybody having these conversations except people that are typically labeled fringe actors. Now, whether or not you like Jimmy Dore's politics, the fact is Jimmy Dore is actually covering it. Whether or not you like Max Blumenthal's politics, the fact of the matter is Max Blumenthal is raising awareness about it, or at least trying to talk about it. 
He's not going to be able to get inside the conference, you know, without uh, without without necessarily a press pass or or you know going undercover to try and look like somebody who belongs there. And there's only been a couple of people um, that have actually been able to get into the uh, the conference itself. And uh, two of them are, are authors that I would highly recommend uh, whose whose books you would read. One is the true story of the Bilderberg Group by Daniel Estulin. It's been translated into multiple languages since its original publication in 2007. And the other one is Mark Dice's The Bilderberg Group, Facts and Fiction. And Mark Dice was somebody who was actually able to get into the conference and uh, write about what actually happens there. You know, so I'll read a, a short excerpt. Uh, Every spring since 1954, an elite group of around 100 of the world's most powerful politicians, businessmen, bankers, media executives, and international royalty have been quietly gathering for a secret meeting in an evacuated five-star hotel while being protected by armed guards who stand watch. Inside, for three days, the attendees engage in lengthy, off-the-record talks about the top issues facing the world. They're called the Bilderberg Group, or often just Bilderberg for short. And for over half a century, there wasn't much more than a peep about the meeting in American mainstream media. For decades, many people believed this meeting was an urban legend, but as you will see, it's very real and very well documented. Rumors about the Bilderberg Group do seem like something out of a Hollywood movie with the cliché claims of a secret meeting of a group of wealthy men trying to take over the world. But as crazy as, it, crazy as it sounds, in recent years, a lot of allegations about the Bilderberg Group that had floated around on the Internet began to surface in some mainstream publications. To many people's surprise, such a meeting exists, and the rumors were true. Between 100 to 120 of the world's top politicians, businessmen, financial fat cats, military leaders, Heads of intelligence agencies, reporters, and executives from major media outlets fly halfway around the world together once a year in the end of May or early June in a closed-down fancy hotel for three days and are protected by private security contractors and local police who stand watch outside to prevent any uninvited guests from dropping by. Temporary security fences are even set up to prevent anyone from stepping foot on the property and attempt to block the view from any onlookers who are watching from across the street to see who shows up. The attendees arrive one after the other in tinted Lincoln town cars driven by professional drivers. Independent journalists and photographers have been able to discover the time and place for many of these meetings in recent years, and have gotten clear photographs of some of the men and women who have attended, but most still refuse to even acknowledge they know anything about it. Some people refer to them as the 1%, but this label is far from accurate if you do the math. 1% of the Earth's 7 billion people is 70 million people. Bilderberg Group is more like the 0.00001%, which is approximately 700 people, a figure that accounts for the steering committee and regular attendees over the past few decades. For decades, the news of the shadowy Bilderberg Group sped in so-called anti-government patriot circles and underground newsletters and conspiracy websites until the advent of YouTube and social media finally forced some major mainstream media outlets to admit that Bilderberg is real and some very powerful people attend. After these decades of news blackouts with the rise of social media and video sharing sites like YouTube, slowly more and more major news outlets have begun to at least mention the Bilderberg Group, albeit ever so briefly, and usually including the caveat that conspiracy theorists are upset or paranoid about them. Through the increase in popularity of alternative news websites and the emergence of social media, more and more people began learning about this strange and secretive meeting, and it got to a point where mainstream outlets basically had to at least mentioned it, it was happening, and attempts to avoid looking like they were covering it up by purposely avoiding the issue. Anyway, um, yeah, I wanted to, uh, to you know, get thoughts from my comrades up here, but as well, uh, comments and questions from the audience. If you have any uh, feedback or any questions, I mean, feel free to uh, hop into the caller queue. Um, 
And if you uh, get into the caller queue and ask your question, don't feel like it's a one and done thing. You can always like hop in and uh, if you have like further questions further along in the episode, we're happy to answer those as well. You can always come back. Yeah. So I think maybe like the majority of the fourth estate is too busy to, you know, actually investigate what this incredibly small group of the ruling class is up to because they're just, yeah, too preoccupied with uh, railing at Biden officials for not doing enough to escalate tensions between nuclear powers to uh, a DEFCON 1 level of, of conflict. Um, and uh, yeah, they just got no time for that. Um, and also, like, things like the, the Bilderberg group become, like, starting off in very kind of niche conspiracy theory communities that like believe in a lot of batshit stuff in addition to a lot of the true stuff. I feel like I wouldn't be surprised if um, little niblets of truth, right, are leaked by uh, intelligence agencies to exactly these types of groups uh to create a limited hangout, right? So that um, they, they can they can let enough out because they know that they can't completely hide it, right? But what they can do is delegitimize anyone who asks what they're actually doing, right? What they're actually up to. So of course they're going to pick the most batshit community uh, that, that would take um, the facts that they find uh, and spin it off almost immediately into kind of anti-Semitic tropes, aliens and lizard people, right? Um, because then it, it immediately delegitimizes, uh, you know, just the basic reality that doesn't take too much investigation to uncover. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I, I would say that, like, uh, doing a little bit of research yesterday when I went on this uh, more right-wing conspiracy stream, it was kind of, like, <laughs> kind of jarring to see, like, how much like stuff like people in that milieu actually like know like in terms of like uh some of these things felt like the way like international finance works these people like know about things that like far more than like your respectable new york times washington post reading npr listening liberal would um but then yeah like you said it's just immediately uh it, not necessarily for all of them and not necessarily consciously, but it inevitably like bleeds into like anti-Semitism or it's because they don't have, you know, like any, like not, not, not exclusively true of reactionaries, liberals, the same, they don't have like a, a uh, concrete analysis or like a scientific understanding of political economy. It's just, they can, it's very easy to take those disparate facts that those epiphenomena and confuse them for like the real phenomena and then like you confuse like the historic association of like jewish people in europe with like finance which is a product of being excluded from land ownership throughout feudalism and you come to the conclusion that like you know you see what banking is doing and you just conclude that it's all you know a a jewish conspiracy um but yeah it is kind of like i said it's it's just kind of jarring to see people who in certain ways and um, like a you know getting a um getting things right while also just being like way wrong and like you said discrediting it uh while meanwhile your liberals who maybe might have a little less more of a measured uh 
understanding are just going to like dismiss it outright because they're going to see who is talking about it. You know, it's just interesting. Yeah. And I just want to make sure that we, uh, Oh God. Okay. I'm asking, or I was asking before and I'm just going to bully you. Um, if you're in the audience and you have any uh, questions, comments, feedback, please hop into the, uh, the caller queue. I mean, as much as I enjoy bantering with my comrades and as much as I am sure they enjoy talking to me on a week to week basis, we're a lot more interested in talking to you and hearing what it is that you think. Uh, so before we go on to uh, the next topic, which was going to be you know, updates on Red Hill and fluoridation of the water, just wanted to make sure that we got at least uh, you know one or two callers. Um, and if you if you don't know uh, very much about the Bilderberg Group, that's completely fine. I mean, not a hell of a lot of people do. Uh, you would have to be, I don't know, a bit of a fanatic like me, who was way back in the 1990s listening to like Rush Limbaugh and Michael Savage and whatnot. And, uh, and you know, where I actually found out about it from was rotten.com. If you can even remember that website, um, rotten.com actually had a library of information that talked about, uh, you know, like occult stuff and conspiracy theories and whatnot. And that's actually how I found out about the Bilderberg, the Bilderberg group. And then I would hear them discussed on, uh, occasionally on Rush Limbaugh's show, um, quite frequently on, on Michael Savage's show. And it, yeah, it kind of fell down the rabbit hole from there. So when, uh, especially in the late nineties, early two thousands, when, uh, people were protesting the WTO, you would occasionally hear people talking about things like the trilateral commission and the builder group. But I, I distinctly recall after September 11th and for a very long time afterwards, it was almost taboo to talk about these things because people labeled you a whack job or a conspiracy theorist and so on. But even after it turns out, yeah, these groups exist. Like there was a trilateral commission put together by, uh, you know, Latter-day Ghouls like Spigniew Brzezinski that, the, you know, the trilateral commission exists. The Council on Foreign Relations is not simply a foreign policy institute, but a an attempt by the United States to shape uh, the global south in its own image and that the Bilderberg Group even exists. And yet these these things aren't discussed by the left and they absolutely should be. Rena, how are you doing? Good evening, Hugh, Kira and Mikey. And I'm sorry, I forgot your final colleague's name. And it's Brad. not it's not. Brad, thank you. Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, I think I think Jimmy and Max said that the builder that uh, Alex Jones was another person who talked about the Bilderberg Group, which he certainly of course, was. Which of course renders it total tinfoil hat territory or or something. Um, what's interesting to me is you know we've just had Davos. And I think the World Health Organization just had a meeting also and had and put out that uh, edict about the next pandemic. We want 200 countries to sign over the authority over all their citizens to the World Health Organization and we'll, t- we'll tell them how to run their health services. And, uh, and now this, now this builder, Bilderberg group thing, uh, build a better bear or whatever it is, build a burger. Uh, it's, it's really hard not to be a conspiracy theorist. And I, I see people, and I remember the trilateral commission too. And, and that was poo pooed as, as not meaning, not meaning anything. And I, of course I suspect that it did. Um, you do see people who say these are just meetings of a bunch of rich people. 
it doesn't really have anything to do with anything. And uh, I'm starting to question that whole premise. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure all y'all do as well. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Also, bye, Felicia. <laughs> uh, wait, she's not. She's not fired, is she? Yep. Oh, she got fired. Yep. Oh my gosh! Hang on, I got to go look this up. Okay. How about? Does anyone? I don't gamble, and I would willing to place a very large bet that there will be a lawsuit. And she all already I have filed to say, a, she had already uh, filed no. a lawsuit against them. Yeah, I know, but this will be a new one because it's a mm-hmm. new topic. Because she got fired. Uh, I will say, if it's on television, I will be watching. I didn't watch any of Amber and Johnny, but this one will be too good to miss. Oh my gosh! Uh, well, you know, there you go. Um. It kind of sucks, you know. I was hoping that the whole thing could be resolved peacefully, but my gosh, um, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm you're not a better human being than <laughs> I am, Q. I I was wondering, I was wondering, I was yeah. wondering why why this went on for a week, why somebody didn't tell her to sit down and shut up six and a half days ago. You know, you want to know that. Okay. Here's, here's what I think. And this applies not only to people like Alicia Sonmez, but to a certain extent to Taylor Lorenz, um, who I actually used to like, like we we actually used to be cool. Um, and then she started going off on some shit that I was just like, what is, what's wrong? Like, when did you become the journalism police? And that's that, like, it's, Uh it's almost as if there is a class of people who, because I can't, I cannot tell you a single article that Alicia Sanchez has written. Um, I have, I, I have no knowledge about her. Like, there's nothing that she's written that has stood out to me. And there's, it's not, it doesn't just exist in journalism. It's there, it's, it's present, and I think it's very visible because journalists tend to live out their psychodramas on social media. Um, but it exists in the entertainment industry as well. It's rampant in the literature industry, and it's also heavily. Um, it exists in academia, though probably not to the same extent that it plays out publicly. But the issue is there are people working in these industries who are relatively new, have not proven their bona fides. Like they haven't written anything that's memorable, been nominated for awards, uh, conducted investigations that were groundbreaking, said anything that made people think uh, you know, a different way. J- just like journey people, you know, and they see people that have been in the industry for a very long time. And granted, journalism is very much an old boys club. Um, it, it, it has become, to a great extent, a decadent pursuit for rich, failed children. The people that can actually stick out journalism school, do these unpaid internships, work in these low-paying jobs for however long it takes to begin to uh, make a name for themselves that they can eventually get recommended up to a Washington Post or a New York Times. I mean, that's, it's a slog. And it's not affordable for most people to be able to do that. And so these these rich fail kids see people that have been in the industry for much longer than them and say, why not me? And it's not as if they have the talent to build that profile through their work. What they do instead is try to rip people off of their podiums so that they can replace them. And while I, I'm not a fan of David Weigel by any stretch, um, and he's like, he's not somebody who's new to cancellation. I remember he was involved in this like journalist fiasco way back in like the 2000s. 
um, where he was like making some shitty comments about conservatives or whatever, which again, like I don't really care. So like none of it really means anything to me, but it does have a, it does reflect on the industry and it does reflect on our idea of what a unionized workplace should look like in the sense where you have somebody that had a problem with something that a coworker retweeted, which like fuck off. But instead of taking it up with that coworker face to face or taking it up with the union, which is where you're supposed to go when you have a problem with a coworker in a unionized environment, she took it directly to the public and to management. And that's you just, like, and, and the worst part was seeing people that claim to be union organizers saying this was the right thing to do. Are you in your fucking mind? You, 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 no. It's saying that you, the unions are not supposed to, unions are not there to protect you from the consequences of your actions. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. Unions are there to fight for you tooth and nail no matter what. It almost seems like, I mean, I, I certainly don't begrudge employees anywhere a union. I, you know, in my whole work life, I never had an opportunity to join a union. But I would have if, if there had been any opportunity, believe me. But it's almost like, I mean, unions are for workers. It's it's almost like this this elite class of these these new and i'm sure they and i'm sure they make sense in a non-elite setting like not the washington post not the new york times you know at the um lincoln journal star here in mm -hmm. nebraska say I'm, I'm sure a union in that newsroom probably makes some sense because those are actually working people for lack of a better word these people seem like <laughs> I'm sorry to pick on the women here, but it's hard not to it seem like pampered, entitled. I mean, we've got Harvard, we've got Swiss finishing schools. We've got, yeah. I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, of course they don't know what a union's for. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm surprised they even joined a union. Do they have to join the union? I, I you know, I, I'm not clear on the whole union thing. And that, that's a real interesting concept because it never even occurred to me that there was a union in the Washington Post newsroom. I just thought it was a bunch of spoiled rich kids running around stabbing, stabbing each other in the back because that's how it looks from the outside. So I mean, that's, 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 that's interesting. I was in a union. The only time I've been in a union, I was working in a grocery store. And I was in the whatever UFCW, and they were like, I didn't get any like support in terms of I had no idea what to do. I mean, there was a union steward like on site, I guess, um, but it wasn't very like they weren't helpful. Like you know, like I don't know what union this these people are in, but I think some of the issue is that a lot, some of the unions also themselves are not necessarily communicating, you know, to the to the workers how to how to handle these things. Yeah, I mean, so the Washington Post Guild, like it's a it's a union specifically for that publication. Um, I was also I was also in the UFCW. My very first job as a teenager was working in a grocery warehouse. So the same grocery store that you worked at, Karen, it might have been my grocery store that was supplying your goods. And um, you know, I saw things like uh, you know coworkers who were coming in late, coworkers who were coming in inebriated, uh, people who caused danger to other coworkers, coworkers who had gotten into like literal fistfights on the warehouse floor. And none of them got fired. Why? Because it's the union's job to take up for them. Um, the, the union's job is not to make people feel safe and welcome. 
It's not to, uh, you know, cater to people's feelings. It's to much like a defense attorney has to, even when all of the evidence is against your client, you're there to fight tooth and nail to make sure, well, a couple things. One, that their job is secure. And two, that they have the, they're able to collectively bargain for the highest salary and benefits possible. That's what they're there for. So yeah, as, as a union unionized employee, I think there's at least one agreement that exists among people who are in that environment is that you take up your problems with the union first. You don't jump behind the union's back and go straight to management because that puts you on the side of management. Like your, your job is not to be your coworkers HR. Now, if it had been something like say sexual harassment, which some has claimed that that's what it was, was that it was, you know, working in this kind of environment where somebody will retweet this puts me in a, in a sort of a place where I feel like I'm being sexually harassed, which give me a fucking break. Um, the, 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 the problem is your, your job is not to police your coworkers' social media. That's HR's job. And if you're putting yourself in the place of HR, well, are you part of the union or do you want to be HR? Pick one. And my that's, question that, would be, why is it even HR's job to police social media? But I know they all yeah. sign something or something that says they'll be good little boys and girls. On social media, but yeah, and I don't know. Did she even go to management, or did she start with Twitter? That's she what I'm. With, I'm started, not started with started with Twitter. Yeah, yeah. that definitely seems seems to me to be way over the top. And yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. Didn't didn't mean to detour from Bilderberg, but it, no, it's all good. <laughs> no, it was I think it's very too it's too very good to pass up. I've seen that. Uh, <laughs> It seems like like so many people like they are. It is so outside their lived experience to have ever like engaged in any kind of uh, collective struggle or like membership in a uh, in a group whose purpose is like your own like shared interests. That like you, uh, including people other than the country club, with. yeah, yeah, yeah. Outside of like bourgeois circles, but for like a lot of like. I don't know. Other, otherwise, it's just like the only thing they can even think to do in this situation is just like play, uh, play cop, or just try to like go complain to the manager. It's, <laughs> it's just kind of like a, I don't know. I've I've seen it happen before, and like I've seen people who, you know, not to, I always hate to that the right wing makes hay with this kind of shit, but like the. <laughs> Being a woke, self-appointed woke cop uh, vigilante is like definitely a real thing, and I've seen it like happen where people do that without any regard for what the like effect will be on like a group or a movement, a project that they are ostensibly a part of. Uh, and it's, I don't, to me, I think it's largely like a, a downstream thing from the fact that people don't know what it's like to, uh, you know fight for something in a group, including with people that you may find to be, you know, you may not get along with or may have issues with or who may have, you know, rough edges and, and this, that, and the other. Yeah, Brad, that's, that's a really good point. And one other thing, I, I keep forgetting to mention this too. This, this kind of focuses on newsroom stuff. And, but I've been, I've been watching this whole phenomenon a, a little longer in terms of academics and specific specifically about that the 
dear colleague or whatever it was called, the, the letter of guidance that came out of the um, Obama administration related to Title IX issues that basically turned uh, colleges and universities into kangaroo courts to adjudicate uh, sexual sexual assault issues. Uh, I'm not stating that very well, but anyway, I, I think I follow way too many law lawyers on social media and, you know, defense lawyers have been screaming their heads off about this for a long, long time about the lack of due process, the fact that universities uh, were particularly ill-equipped to turn into courts of law. And, you know, when, when this stuff started out, the, the defendant, which was usually a guy, uh, a lot of times didn't even didn't even have anybody uh, representing him. Uh, uh, the def the the guy wasn't allowed to question the the complainant, usually a woman, uh, because that was traumatizing for her, or to question the witnesses, or his representative was not allowed to do that. I mean, these these things have been a shambles and have ruined uh, not a few. Uh, college careers and lively, future livelihoods of uh, more than a few uh, young men in, in a college environment. And ironically, the person who put a stop to it all was Betsy DeVos, Donald Trump's Secretary of Education. She put the kibosh on it. And now the Biden administration has reinstated basically the same policies. So it's, it's, uh, it's not over, but I'm wondering if this is the beginning of the end of some of this stuff. Although there've been a lot of uh, unfortunate uh, casualties of, of some of this. So I don't know, just just throwing that out for what it's worth. I'm probably gonna have on <clears throat> Heidi Matthews at some point, a friend of mine who's a uh, human rights lawyer, but also one of the original skeptics of the, uh, of the Me Too movement as a political strategy on to talk about this stuff um and i'll be sure oh, to let you know great. when it happens yeah 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 yeah. No, be... definitely something to, to talk about in the future um do want to move on to the other topics but uh rena really do appreciate you stopping by yeah it has definitely been ugly to say the least yeah absolutely all right thanks a lot rena um thank you it, anytime anytime we'll see you around soon uh mikey what updates did you have for us regarding uh, fluoridation in, in Hawaiian waters. <laughs> fluoridation. Um, well, I, I was only, uh, sorry, I'm kind of double tasking here, but from what I heard, like th there are some things where, yeah, I think, uh, certain things can be taken a little far, but I think it's important to, uh, can't reiterate enough that the vast, vast majority of allegations of assault are, are true. And, you know, what Betsy DeVos got through is, is on the whole, incredibly, like, that's horrible for women in particular um, and, and for, for survivors of, of, you know, particularly sexual violence. Um, but uh, with respect to Red Hill, uh, there is, God, there's plenty of shit going on. Um, so the Department of Health issued a new emergency order. Uh, so, so a little bit of background uh, for those who don't know, Red Hill uh its place named Kapukaki. The US Navy stores twenty fuel tanks there that they was constructed in World War II 
and they have been leaking for decades, possibly uh, half a century or more. And in late 2021, thousands of people, including service people, civilians, Kanakamaoli, uh, animals, fish, pets, babies, children, all fell incredibly ill because that fuel, which sits just 100 feet above our sole source aquifer, leaked into the Navy's water lines. And um, I'm, I'm a member of Oahu Water Protectors, uh, an organizer with Oahu Water Protectors, and uh, with uh, your communist dad, uh, also organized in a mutual aid collective that serves uh, the affected people. And uh, as a result of our organizing and mobilizing and agitating, we were able to get the Pentagon uh, and Lloyd Austin to announce that they were going to shut down Red Hill. But um, they basically used that like little victory, you know, as they often do, to try to de-radicalize people and to uh, get people to fall back asleep on the issue. And so uh, that has kind of happened. And uh, in response to that, we are engaging in a massive canvassing and political education campaign uh, to get everyone in every single zip code on Oahu uh, to know about what's actually going on, that this is an ongoing crisis, that this will be, you know, pretty much the driving force that puts us into a historic drought uh, in these summer months because of the fact that out of an abundance of caution, the Board of Water Supply had to close off two of its main shafts, which reply, uh, supply uh, a quarter of the water that goes to downtown Honolulu. Um, and there's still, you know, contaminated water, like in our aquifer. There's fuel still just migrating around in our aquifer and the Navy both, I think, doesn't know and doesn't want to share critical information uh, that would help us figure out, like, what we're up against. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Department of Health issued a new series of emergency orders uh, with three separate kind of toothless deadlines because they're not deadlines for implementation of defueling and decommissioning. They're just deadlines for the submission of plans for defueling and decommissioning. And so one of those uh, deadlines passed where they had to submit basically the results of a quote-unquote independent study from a private contractor known as SGH uh, to diagnose what we, thanks to a lot of whistleblowers, have known for decades about Red Hill, that it's fucking deteriorating. It's falling apart. <laughs> That's why it's been leaking. It's, it's, and it's not just a few tanks. It's a systemic failure. It's the whole facility, right? Uh, because these tanks, they pipe fuel downhill uh, with, you know, with the aid of gravity all the way down to Pu'uloa, otherwise known to many other people as Pearl Harbor, to fuel all the ships and all the other weapons of war uh, that allow the United States to be the unipolar world hegemon, at least for now, in the Pacific, as well as the rest of the world. And so the, the current issue now is that they basically completely 180 their strategy, uh, it's it's kind of like uh, this this monumental level of gaslighting uh, where they have basically said, you know what, actually, you're right. You know, we may have sued your state government to resist this emergency order and said that, like, these, this facility is not only fine, it is operating perfectly fine. Um, and this was just a result of human error. Actually, you were right. Uh, this is a systemic failure, thanks to this, quote, unquote, independent report. And because... 
it is in such a level of deterioration, we're going to need two years to repair this facility before we can even start defueling it. And guess what? Defueling it could take up to another year. So they basically used what we've always known, that Red Hill was falling apart, and now are, are not only admitting it, but they're using it as an excuse not to defuel. <laughs> Despite the fact that in 2019, one of their own public studies bragged about how they could easily and speedily defuel an entire tank, which contains 12.5 million gallons at its capacity, within 36 hours. And so there's still over 100 million gallons of fuel in those tanks. And while it may not be in operation, any t- even, even an act of repair, uh, which has, you know, like in previous leaks, uh, the leaks resulted in their act to renovate or repair this system. So it could easily happen. If there's a single catastrophic leak beyond what we've already experienced, that could mean the end of clean water on Oahu as we know it. So um, in terms of political priority for Hawaii, to me, it is one of the, it is one of, if the not most important political issue of my lifetime. Um, and I think really more people need to know about this because um, that's that's the end of an entire indigenous way of life if there's a catastrophic leak, potentially, right? Because that could stay in the aquifer contaminated for centuries, generations upon generations. And, you know, we may already be too late. We have no way of knowing, but we have to act as if there is still time <laughs> in, in the same way that we would react to the climate crisis on the, on the world scale, right? Um, and I, I do believe that there's still time to stop it. But the longer it goes on, uh, the closer we get to the inevitability of there being another catastrophic leak. But thanks for letting me give an update on that. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, and uh, Karen. Oh, okay, so first of all, if we have any um, any uh, questions or well, comments. Could I uh, connect to what Mikey said real quick? To what yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead. Yep. I think something that's been interesting in this work that Mikey's talking about is that uh because of the fact that a lot of the folks affected are military and just the fact that this issue directly affects like everyone on oahu uh we're one of the things we're trying kind of having to figure out is like and develop this an ability is to uh basically you know as mal said uh unite all the forces that can be united and so it, it's just kind of an interesting contrast with a certain maybe more kind of purity kind of rattle up kind of mindset where you're always <laughs> Trotskyist type mindset. We're always trying to find reasons to not be able to be in community or solidarity with someone. Um, we're, it's just a stark contrast with the mindset we're having to cultivate where it's like, we're going to be working alongside people who have reactionary views um, and just like figuring out how to remain uh, you know, in solidarity with and work alongside those sorts of uh, folks is, I think, going to be a really big growing, growth opportunity for a lot of folks who are really solid people within more like activist type circles who maybe aren't as used to or as comfortable uh, working with just the, you know, Joe public. All right, cool. Thank you for that update. And uh, Kieran, did you have any uh, comments before we move on to the uh, update with the NDP and the Canadian war machine? <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I was just gonna say, I mean, I don't know the whole situation with, um, I mean, it's, it's really messed up with Hawaii. I don't, I don't know all the details. So I really do rely on Mikey, um, for update dates. Um, and I haven't been to the spaces and I'm, cause I know Mikey, you were running those. I don't know if you're still running them. 
Um, but oh god, I've been so busy. I would love to get back to them, but it's just it's a it's a real time commitment. That I, know, I just don't have time. Yeah, what, what's happened to uh, Armani and uh, Zoyan and all them? Like we we used to have the the Everybody dopest spaces. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, probably living healthy, well-adjusted lives or some mm-hmm. shit. Well, yeah, there is that. I mean, oh y'all were doing Summer like spaces on a twenty-four hour basis and shit. I, I didn't know how long you'd be able to pick that up for. But you yeah. know, I um I think that uh, I I also saw some tweets by um. I think they're your comrade. Um, I don't know uh, their name. Um, it's it's escaping me right now. Um, and they were saying that, you know, don't come to Hawaii. They're like talking about tourism oh, okay. and stuff. And, you know, I think that that's something a lot of people don't realize is that, um, you know, in, in specifically when the indigenous people and the, and the residents, you know, who are from there, who are there are telling you don't come we don't want your tourism you know people need to listen to that you know because for example there's some places like cuba where their economy is based on tourism so they actually want more tourists but if uh you know places like uh hawaii for example for example as i understand it there like shit is so bad that like the tourists only um basically you know suck up whatever resources are available and then the the uh the businesses around they just cater to the tourists and there's a lot of exploitation and so yeah no absolutely and i think uh one of the key distinctions between uh the tourist industry in cuba and the tourist industry in hawaii is that uh many of the indigenous people and locals of hawaii they don't see a red cent of of the profits right all of that you know like any dollar you spend in Waikiki beyond just paying the base wages of the employees there or that you spend like at, at a stand, like that's, that's a percentile of a percentile of the actual mm-hmm. take on that, right? So when people come to Hawaii and, and say like, oh, I'm helping the economy because your tourism is, is reliant. I mean, your, your economy is reliant on tourism and the military. And it's like, well, yes, that's true. But, um, how do you think it got that way? And who do you think the lion's share of those profits go to? It goes to the fucking settler state and it goes to the ruling class who own all of these hotel chains but don't even live here, right? A lot of them don't even have never even set foot in Hawaii. Uh, they, they just own the properties uh, through theft, through, you know, the overthrow, through the uh, white supremacist right-wing capitalist coup that happened in, in 1893, um, but that was being set up for decades before that, right? Um, so, so that's that's kind of one of the key distinctions. So when Kanaka tell you like, don't come to Hawaii for your vacation, right? Like that's that's the history and and the reasons behind it. It's not because nobody wants you to you know escape your personal capitalist hellscape. It's just they don't like when you come here for those reasons. You actively participate in that system, and and mm. we all like to politely ask folks not to do that. Um, but yeah, if I could quickly just circle back to one thing dad said, I know we're going on an hour now, but just like I have personally had to struggle with those contradictions of organizing with military housing families. Never, never in my wildest dreams would I have thought, you know, that that would be something that I'd be spending, you know, the vast majority of my current free time on, you know, uh, or organizing like families, who are who live in military housing? Some of who are active duty service members themselves, or at the very least, uh, married to someone who is active duty. Um, but it's yeah, it's 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 been a, an incredibly um, instructive 
experience uh, for me as an organizer and and as you know someone who does consider themselves a communist and a revolutionary because um you have to resolve those in your head in order to be in right relation with these folks that you you have to be in solidarity with right um but what's been truly amazing is that um like i've been able to practice basically the counter argument to all this pat sock bullshit where you uh you don't have to do anything going beyond meeting people where they're at and moving them where they need to be moved. Uh, you don't have to, to, to do, you know, the, I mean, this Pat Sog bullshit experiment has been tried dozens of times <laughs> by, by Western chauvinists, right? And it never works. But um, it's been really beautiful to see the counterexample working where, you know, I and we, we show up in solidarity for these people who are suffering, the way indigenous people have been suffering for generations, right, Un- under capitalist rule and under this, you know, colonial or neo-colonial occupation, um, it's they are experiencing a taste of what the the indigenous people land and water have been going through for hundreds of years, right? And um, by being in solidarity with them, they are able to experience and hear things they never would have been able to hear months before this happened, right? But now, now that now that they're being introduced and and being able to bri- build bridges of understanding and solidarity with Kanaka, um, they are moving to positions that you know, quote unquote, patriotic socialists never could possibly imagine. People that they have idealized completely out of proportion because they they can't organize themselves out of their own fucking bedroom, right? Um, and and I think this is how we build genuine movements is, 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 yeah, by, by, by not letting these, 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 um, not, by not letting reactionary ideas slide, but knowing the right moments and the right ways to move people in the areas where they need to move at the right time, uh, and in the right context. I think that we, I think we, we've got way bigger matters to worry about, frankly, than, um, uh, Pat Sox or, really like any flavor of socialism that is that is not about building power and not just in the abstract sense not just uh you know getting popular support or getting people to agree with us but i think it's really it comes down to a couple of things one is can we build electoral power and then two is can we actually can we build um like a populist movement and my biggest problem right now is that we're tailing populist movements like we're trying to catch up and analyze but there is a very large populist movement that's being built right now. And the fact that communists are not leading it is a huge problem for me. Like Kieran and I have talked about this already, but I, I just, I, I don't understand how it is that like we have, I don't know, like splits and divisions and not even among like people that are like party members and comrades, but among people that are, you know, speaking to each other on social media. When right now, I, I think if there's one thing that the, the Pat Sox got correct, it's that the most important warfare right now is information warfare. Like that, that is a hundred percent correct. That, uh, the ability to, the ability to spread your ideology and to call out, uh, you know, the failures and the contradictions of the ruling class is only going to get accomplished if you can actually reach people. And we've very much relegated ourselves to liminal spaces. You know, Twitter is a fringe social media site. We'll say, for example, well, you're just, you're just a podcaster or you're just a streamer or you're just a YouTuber. 
Well, people are watching more YouTube than they are watching television. And the younger you get in demographics, the more they're using new media, i.e. YouTube, Twitch, Rumble, even Colin, Instagram, TikTok. That, th- these, are, these are the platforms that people are using to get their information. And what, what kind of bothers me is that I think we've been spending a lot of time figuring out the proper political line and how to make everyone feel welcome, which that's a good thing. But because we've been spending so much time trying to hash out how everyone can feel welcome, we kind of forgot, hey, we actually have to like mobilize. And when we, we talk about like orga- what organization is, okay, organization towards what end? Engaging in mutual aid, great thing to do. Engaging in mutual aid towards building a, gr- a broader political project, doesn't work. Because if you're engaging in mutual aid for the purpose of, well, we do something for them now, and then maybe they'll do something for us later, it's not, it's not, it's not genuine. And people can smell that coming a mile away. If I, if I engage in like the, uh, the Caremongers project out here in Pickering, Ontario, um, I do it because I want to, and I want to like, be able to help out my community. But I'm not doing it for the purpose of building a broader political project. The broader political project is in showing people what communist and socialist thought is all about and how the anti-establishment and in some ways anti-imperialist sentiment that's coming up organically from the public, if it's not managed, if it's not discussed and analyzed and put into action, if people don't really understand, if people don't get that we understand how they feel and that we agree, then who do they turn to? The reactionaries, which is why a lot of people don't like Jimmy Dore, don't like Glenn Greenwald, and other associated people. Some people don't like Max Blumenthal for these reasons, because they say that they're reactionary, this, that, and the third. But if there's something that they do absolutely have right, it's that they understand that there is a groundswell of anti-establishment sentiment coming up, and it's not up to anybody to decide whether people who are anti-establishment are pure enough or agree with us enough or have the right politics to be able to join a movement because like filtering the people out, especially given that we're talking about roughly half of the population, not just the electorate, but people who don't even show up to vote. We're talking about roughly half of the people in the country share these kinds of feelings. So the question is, do we want to chase alongside say liberals and try to get them to just like nudge a little bit farther left? No, no, no. They're, they're actually, they ha- they're quite comfortable where they are and they're not going to budge. It's everybody else. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is uh, veering into territory beyond <laughs> what our subject matter was. But yeah. um, I think that, that this is, um, there's a tension in the supposed uh, so-called even, and I'm talking about actual communist um, in the U.S. and Canada in particular. Uh, where we have people, you know, who are, whether you're in a party or not, or you are, um, you know, in some kind of organization, um, there is a sense that all what, what we need is to have the proper um, line on whatever, you know, on whatever topic we can, right? So, um, the and then what happens is that we don't engage, we don't think about what that means in praxis. So, or... We only engage with people who already agree with us on all these other issues, okay? And that, and by that, I mean gender, sexuality, race, um, 
we need to people to be completely on board on all of the cultural issues before we're going to advocate that they have food, housing, shelter, before we're willing to stand with them against war, before we're willing to stand with them against, uh, you know, militarism and exploitation and capitalism. Um, so I feel, and I say this as a queer woman of color and all those intersections that I'm in, um, I don't understand how things are going to change if everybody wants to stay in their silo and only wants to talk to people that they already have like 95% of things in common with. Because there is, for example, the, the, the United States has a population of like, what, 300 million people. Canada has, I think, approaching 38 million. They're, together, they're about 400 million. Now, imagine 400 million people Okay, in this uh, whatever you know, Anglo settler colony, the two countries, which you know what, whose fates are are tied. Okay, their fates are tied, um, and so if you take this this uh, number and you think about all the people who are you know um, just not ideologically where 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 you are, and then you're not going to talk to them and you're not going to have anything to do with them until they change their mind or they won't. Or I don't know what we think if we think if we don't, if we cancel somebody, if we if somebody gets uh, kicked off of Twitter or whatever, or, or we kill, kick them out of our organization, that they just disappear. They don't. They go join something else. They go do something else. The people don't. I mean, what is it that we think is going to happen to these people who do not have the right mindset about these issues, the cultural issues, right? So for, to me, um, you know, I have listened to a lot of different perspectives on this. And I think there's a very, very simplistic way that this bullshit happens online. Pat socks, the anti-pat socks, you know, and, and this like this constant bickering back and forth. It's fucking tiring. Okay, I'm going to tell you what somebody living in Yemen wants, what somebody living in Cuba wants. They want you to get the fuck off of our asses. They want us to get the fuck off of our asses and stop our country from destroying their country. Okay, that is what they want. They don't care who the fuck does it or if you're wearing an American flag or if you are doing it under this label or that label. They don't care. What matters to them is the fucking job needs to get done. Imperialism needs to fucking stop now everywhere so what i'm saying is to me i don't understand why how the fuck this bickering is supposed to who the fuck does this bickering help all it seems to do to me is virtue signaling each side trying to pretend that they're a better communist they're more fucking marxist they're more fucking pure and to me all that matters is the actual fucking results of what's happening you know right now um i saw videos of abby martin and and eugene Perrier and a couple of the people uh you know actually going into the fucking uh summit of the americas and confronting these people you know like uh blinken and all those assholes i saw a pic um a video of a woman uh, um you know on with the blowhorn like you know yelling in the street while the uh, biden motorcade was going on and this fuck these fucking huge cops pummel her down beat her up and like you know it's all on there it's all on twitter you know these are the people putting their bodies on the line okay the fucking people sitting on twitch streams for 12 hours a day and the other people who talk about those people all day they're not doing anything for imperial against imperialism this is your online bickering about oh is pat sock good is pat sock bad it is not helping anyone okay so that is to me i don't give a fuck about these labels i'm never going to wear a canadian flag or an american flag to me those are repulsive symbols too but to me what matters is are these people going to fight for the material conditions to fucking change 
for imperialism to fucking stop, for housing, for healthcare. You know, that's the shit that fucking matters. And I don't care. I'm, I don't have to be best friends with everybody who I'm fighting next to. You know, you don't have to fucking like me and I don't have to fucking like you. But if we both want, um, you know, the, the 18 billion dollars that the, that the Canadian government is, is allocating to the fucking weapons. If we don't want that and we want housing instead, I don't care what else you fucking do. If, if maybe we can. And this is actually the way that the LGBT movement, for example, has actually made gains in unions. Historically, look it up. Historically, it was through union organizing. And and it was because um, people who were, you know, homophobic were working next to people who were, uh, you know, gay or just coming out of the closet or still in the closet. And they got to know each other and they got to fight together for material condition for their material conditions against the bosses, against the capitalists. And that was a huge part of the original, like, uh, you know, um, the original, like the, the way the communists were involved in the early gay movement in the U.S., for example. So uh, my point is that we will not get anything with these fucking culture wars, especially not online fucking bickering, making Twitter accounts for against this guy. And then he makes it against the other guy. And then they're just going live streaming each other and debate bros. And like, who is this fucking supposed to help? What is this? supposed to fucking achieve i mean i'm sorry go to fucking yemen and tell them that this is important that's my fucking like litmus test you know go to palestine and tell them this is important because it is not fucking important and i say this uh you know as somebody I, i'm not just saying this to people who are anti-patsock and i'm not just saying this to people who are so-called patsock all of fuck all of this whole fucking bickering to me is bullshit <sighs> yeah i agree um, well, it looks like we're probably not going to have time to get into the NDP and it's, uh, cause I want to make sure that everyone's able to, to leave on time and we're, we've only got a couple of minutes left in the show. Um, so we can, we can hold that one until next week. Um, but is there anything that anybody wanted to plug before we go? I just want to say one thing about the whole sexual harassment thing. There are very real issues with uh, that people, especially people who are women, uh, face um, in workplaces and all kinds of places. And I just want to make sure that we we do like Mikey, you know, we do want to not downplay those that they're real fucking issues. And most people, most women are not in positions like this uh, Felicia or whatever her name is, you know, in a, in a relatively privileged Sanmez, position. Yeah. What's her name? Felicia Sanmez. Right. So... Most women who are being, you know, you know, who are having their butts pinched and shit, they're working as tellers, you know, they're working as grocery store clerks and, and stuff like that. They do not have the, the the leverage of somebody who has a big Twitter account and all that. So, yeah. um, you know, I just want to point out that that is a real issue and we should never ever think that this is all just bullshit and all women who, who talk about this is bullshit. And yes, other people, including men and other, you know, non-binary people also get uh, sexual harassed and assault. But what I'm saying is something like this where some idiot, you know, to retweets a joke and then he gets suspended. Now, this only... Um, I think it only gives ammo, ammunition to the people who are going to make it into it. You know, oh, we don't have to ever, ever, ever pay attention to any kind of sexual harassment because it's all a joke. It's all. Yeah, it greatly diminishes the impact yeah. of like, you know, um, actual claims. But the, the, I guess the the part that bothers me the most about it is that there there actually is a way to manage it. Like if you are bothered by somebody else's tweet or retweet for myself like i just i wouldn't be able to care less but if somebody else does then you you go you file a grievance if that's how you really feel about it and i just think that if you're working in a unionized workplace you you follow those 
rules, if not guidelines, because the only thing, the only thing that you're doing by making somebody's retweets um, open for public scrutiny and then for discipline is that you open the door for management to be able to further control what you do in your off time, right? Like every media company does have a social media policy. The Washington Post has one. The New York Times has one. All of them do. But what you say on your own Twitter account, as long as you're not saying anything blatantly racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever, that should not really be within the purview of workplace relations. I really don't think it should be. And and the more you try to make that aspect of your personal life and your personal social media underneath the purview of your workplace, then they only they only get to use that to control what it is you do. And if the, if the union will not stand behind you because, well, yeah, we're going to stand behind the employees conditionally based on whether we like what they do, that benefits nobody except management. And I just, I, I really resent um, many of these careerist climbers that use, like, calling out of people in their industry and even in their workplaces. Now, if it was like he said something just egregiously sexist and she took it up with the union and then there was some form of uh, mutual understanding or discipline levied, that's completely up to them. But it shouldn't be any, like as a member of the public, it shouldn't be any of my business. That's how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I, think, I also feel like I don't even think it's really necessary to um, clarify that, you know, of course, you know, we stand by and we stand behind women um, and anybody else really in a workplace that has been uh, harassed or sexually assaulted or anything like that. I think that kind of goes without saying, but I think that um, having to, having to front load the conversation with, but of course we stand by, well, that all, all to me, what that does is act as if most people don't have, I think, a general sensibility of what's okay in the workplace and what isn't. And I think for the most part, people do. Um, otherwise, like we wouldn't be able to work together at all. I think people generally have a fairly good sense of what should be acceptable in a workplace and what shouldn't. And frankly, I think what should not be acceptable in the workplace, especially if you work with the press is, and especially if you're in a unionized environment is policing what it is that your coworkers say. I just, even if I heavily disagree with what somebody else says that I don't like, then I'll take it up with them. I'll, if, if I'm mad about it, I'll have a one-on-one conversation. But this whole thing where everything has to be adjudicated through social media, it's it's really grating on my nerves. Oh, no, yeah, it and I, adjudicated. Sorry, Mikey. It shouldn't be adjudicated yeah. to social media, but I do think that there has, like, not – I disagree with you, Q. I don't think everybody just automatically knows. I mean, like, there, there's 80 people listening now. There might be other people listening further, and they might yeah. go into their workplaces and do – you know, I mean, I'm, I don't know everybody who's listening. So I, I just want to make sure that people understand that, like – the, the when I say that I don't put it as like just an empty disclaimer. I mean I mean yeah. that like I, I have uh, I, I'm not somebody who will just random you know by default believe every you know female person who accuses somebody. I do think that evidence is necessary and a pattern of behavior, a pattern of abuse is necessary because it it, it to me it is also very easy this this kind of tactic is used against anti imperialists against anybody who actually challenges the status quo as well. So I think that there is there is a tension there, but I, you know we cannot just like throw uh you know I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I'm just saying that I I've seen also in places you know people who don't have social media 
media or to anything, right? Who are just like I was at a bank the other day. Uh, I was opening a, an account, and this woman, and she's like this tall woman, and this the she couldn't. There was something that wasn't working, and she calls her manager and the the branch manager, and he comes in, and she was wearing a mask. He wasn't. That's a separate thing. And he's like flirting with her the whole time, and he's like call, you know saying that she's so tall. He, she intimidates him, and and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, who the why the fuck are you talking to? In, first of all, her like that, and then in front of a customer. And she's just like, you know, trying to like, you could tell that she was uncomfortable. And I mean, I don't know what else happens. I was there for like, you know, half an hour. I don't know what else happens in this branch and who else is working there. Um, My point is that, you know, that not everybody is is go- is in the on the at the same mindset people might think that you know uh, commenting on somebody's ass is just a joke but it's not it's not necessary and especially not in a workplace if you do not have that kind of relationship it's not a joke and yeah. i do think that people have the right to say no that's not fucking cool so stop it now i don't think it needs it needs to mean like that that person's career should end or something i don't think that i think there people need to learn how to disagree and not like kill each other you know yeah no i got that no, yeah and I'm, yeah just just so we're clear, I, I think a, a general rule of thumb that most people should be able to follow is don't do weird shit. But then again, maybe, <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe I'm just old. I don't know. Yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I think general also, rule of like, thumb, do not do weird shit. So many, so many folks, like, yeah, particularly like that, that kind of like journalist, like class uh, is like so poisoned by online that, that they, that they think like a lot of these kind of like, uh, system deep conflicts get adjudicated online right and they really don't you, you can't you can't find accountability there at least not kind of any kind of real accountability and and uh, it's it's kind of um it's detrimental to to the broader you know goal of like actually combating those systems because it may give you some of kind of like the uh the lizard brain cathartic uh, rewards that come with owning somebody online or, or calling somebody out online uh, and letting the whole world know about the bad thing they did. Um, even if it is, you know, maybe a, a legitimately terrible thing, um, it's not going to extract any real justice. Um, and I think this is some uh, slightly connected um, to a great point that uh, I think Esperanza brought up um, about kind of like the, um, the whole uh, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp thing where it's like, when you when you um kind of like center like those kind of public conflicts between members of the bourgeoisie as somehow representative of you know uh these uh systemic uh oppressions like you know misogyny and, and patriarchy and, and um um you know uh partner violence like it it really abstracts it and makes it you know uh really lose sight of, of the terrain of where this normally happens, right? Like Kieran mentioned, it's like, you know, this is, this is like in workplace or, or in like working class homes where this, where this, you know, happens um, and, and doesn't get that kind of stage. Um, People yeah, don't have the money to pay their defense lawyers. Thou- exactly. Tens of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Like, yeah, it, it, it's 100% on the money. It's something that I've wanted to say, but I thought, eh, you know what? Maybe I'm not the right messenger for it, being a guy and everything. But it's true. I think that when we, uh, you know, uh, start when we try to envision um, relationships and relations generally between working class people through the lens of celebrity, it's it's a losing game, right? Because then you start like then you start asking questions about why is it that you didn't take this, that, and a third action as if they are a celebrity and they have the free time and energy and money to think about these things. 
Yeah, I stayed away from that whole thing. I mean, I it, like YouTube apparently was pushing it down everybody's throat like every single day. Yeah. Every single day I would see, oh, like 15 different things pop up on my YouTube every time I went to YouTube. And I'm like, why? I'm not following these channels. I've never searched for these people. Why am I seeing this? Um, but yeah, this this was obviously a uh, some kind of weird, I think it was some kind of media op to like distract everybody from everything else. But um, yeah, like I... I you know, I am not there and I don't think that I think pe- this is part of this like Western culture of uh, obsession, like consuming consumerism of celebrity culture, you know, that uh, people see themselves in Johnny Depp or, you know, you were you, you know, you thought he was hot once upon a time. Therefore, you have to defend him forever. Or you see yourself in Amber Heard as every poor damsel in distress. Like there's no room for like, you know, um, actually looking at the evidence again, evidence, you know witnesses evidence corroboration that's what the whole system or at least uh you know it's supposed to be about um because i don't think we can just like uh i don't think we should just um be um i mean i think we have to find a fine line we have to always find the fine line between um you know taking accusations seriously as well as making sure that people are not uh you know um like thrown to the wolves just based on accusations you know it has to there has to be some grounding in you know either a pattern of abuse or evidence or combination or witnesses and and um so i I stayed out of that whole thing but i totally agree people need to stop with the celebrity culture bullshit i i commented today on this ezra miller thing Uh, apparently ezra miller like kidnapped some teenage girl or something i I, yeah took out iron eyes yeah, and like that's the first time in a long time that I've actually paid attention to any bullshit because I think that I mean she's not a celebrity, you know. They had this person. Yeah, no, she was one of the um, Standing Rock land defenders. Yeah, it's it's really madness. But anyway, sorry, Mikey, were you gonna say something? Did I cut you off? No, 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 it's all good. I had a uh, yeah, just one thing. Like I found helpful because I spent a lot of time. Fortunately, I've been lucky enough to avoid being directly involved in some of these kinds of things, but I've definitely witnessed situations where like people uh made claims that were not true oh i know what you're talking about uh, i've seen it happen multiple times now actually and like i think that for me the way i help to like helps me think about it is i'm not going to shock anyone here but it's like you got to look at these things like dialectically and like mal says like you have to look at all sides of the things and i think that like within a liberal culture there's this aversion to examining both sides of a thing because liberalism wants to look at things and say you have the good and you have the bad and the good is over here and the bad is over there and we don't want to touch we don't want to consider it but like a dialectical approach would be like you have to acknowledge the fact that there is a contradiction in the first place to begin to be able to make like meaningful interventions in like how like we handle these things and so that means acknowledging the fact that like sometimes it is true people do make false accusations but within that, you have to always keep in mind what the primary aspect of that contradiction is. What, like, what's the thing that usually happens, though? Like Mikey said, well, usually, we all know, like, usually it's a victim is not listened to, is not heard, is gaslit, this, that, and the other. So, like, it's very important to make it clear, like, that is usually what happens. But if you don't acknowledge that sometimes that's not what happens... Uh, you actually cede that ground to reactionaries because what they want to do is they want to say, actually, that's the principal aspect. That's what going on, what's going on most of the time. And so I see this all the time with a lot of like rad lib uh, kind of mindset people where they're like this moralistic fear of um, like, 
oh no, I don't want to be seeming to agree with right wingers who say that like women invent stories of rape. They instead just like pretend that the thing doesn't exist, uh, which really can like characterize almost all liberal conservative discourse is each of them sees one side of a contradiction and they just pretend the other side doesn't exist and just like yell past each other. And that's like, it's, I don't know, just like learning dialectical materialism has just completely changed my life and like the way I see literally everything. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend folks like read like On Contradiction by Mao and uh, yeah, get into that stuff. Cause it's just super helpful, yeah. even outside of politics, just personal life shit. It's so- Yeah, relationship shit. So, Absolutely. Relationships, it's like, it like my marriage is so much better since I like understood the concept of dialectics. Uh, it's, <laughs> it just makes it so much easier to navigate contradiction and conflict. And, and what is a, uh, what is a <laughs> partnership? but a contradiction and a dialectic. You you know? should, if, if you ever want to change your display name, I think like uh, the dialectical life. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep it in mind. All right, yeah. Sorry, y'all. I got to split. I'm running late for a shoot, but take care y'all. See you next okay, week. Yeah, we, yeah, we should probably uh, shut it down. So everybody, you know, thanks for, uh, for dropping by today. Um, if you like us, please support us. Patreon.com forward slash the culture dot TV, uh, the culture with a K D O T tv and um you know the way that you can support us on this platform is by uh sharing the uh the space when we open it up and uh tell people about uh, the culture if you uh, like what we're saying you want to keep us around um then the only way that's going to happen and that colin is going to keep us on that uh, top 20 list as i sit around and brag that three of the shows that i'm on are in the top 20 for colin if you want to keep us there uh tell people all about us thanks very much and we'll see you next week